Okay, well, let's go ahead and run through this. Why did we say that the Bible is a better source of special revelation today than Jesus Christ is? Readily accessible. Right. It's accessible. And I think we added to that something else. What? He's no longer present, obviously. Right. So the Bible's available, Christ isn't. And then we also said because the Bible really gives us the only authentic, authorized picture of who Jesus is, without the Bible we wouldn't know anything about Christ anyway. So, uh, I, I put that, but then it's also expanded too, right, as far as what the Holy Spirit's revealed? Well, Christ didn't reveal. Yeah, well, since we're talking about the doctrine of God, okay. uh, Christ, I think, ultimately gives us the the more most complete picture because he's in him the fullness of Godhead dwells bodily. So he gives us a more complete picture. Attention is that's not available now. If we're talking about general information, yes, <coughs> but knowledge of God, I think, is what I'm oh, sort of aiming okay. at. Yeah, I should have specified that. What's the personal name for God that is never used of anyone other than the true and living God? It would be the Hebrew name. I, yeah, Yahweh. Yahweh, right. Okay. What's the other what's the other Greek word that uh, Hebrew word that's used? Elohim or uh, Elohim. L is singular, Elohim would be plural, and its translation is what? It would be creators. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it it it, ha, it is the more generic of the terms. It can be used of gods other than the true and living God. So it's more of a, if I can say, kind of a way, weird way of putting it. It was kind of like the species name for God, even though God is technically the only one of his kind. <clears throat> when the Bible says that God is spirit, what does it mean? Invisible. Okay, invisible. I think we're 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 on the way. I had some of those looking for life, freedom, one of the different self consciousness, moral agency. Yeah, th- those were all the functions of personality, and spirit is the source of personality. So, uh, yeah, it, perhaps I was thinking more of a, a, a different definition that I'd given. I had the one for uh, spirituality, the indestructible, uh, right, enduring yes. identity apart yeah. from a physical. Very good. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. So, I mean, it in, sort of incorporates invisibility, but it's more the idea. More than that, it's the idea that God has an enduring existence apart from a physical body. We're spirits as well. You know, when we die and we leave our bodies behind, we still we still are. Uh, but God, then we said, was pure spirit, identifying him as uh, strictly immaterial in his, in, his, in his essence. And then what was our definition of life that we gave? This is a tough one. <laughs> I had like three definitions converging in the one. I had uh, energy uh, transferred from God or given from God. Okay. I had. Is that a partial credit? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I thought it was tricky because God created all life, but God is life. So. Right. So I put life is defined by God. Basically, 
God is living, so God is life. And right. God what does, does not mean? create? I think you, there, yeah, it's got the, the energy part is, part is is part of the definition there. So we send the trail on. Yeah, <laughs> he got that from Star Wars. I got force that's personal and rational or has a will. Yeah, I mean, and you well, you, you actually picked up on the other part of the definition, yes. put them together, and, and we said it was. It, it, energy directed by its own intelligence. Yeah, so potential energy directed by its own intelligence. That's that's Dr. McCune's definition, so I'm, I'm borrowing that one. But it seems to be a little bit different than the biological definition of life, which includes more than what the Bible seems to include. So, so the Bible never talks about plants as being living. Not that it's wrong to think in those terms, but that's that's our scientific definition where, where, where we talk about you know yeah it's organic it's it it, it moves it grows it reproduces and, and, and such uh, but uh, but the uh, but the, the definition in scripture seems to be a little bit more exclusive than that there has to be an intelligence that is directing the being's energies. And so animals, to some degree, have life. They can die. We talk about animals dying. Um, people also have life to a greater degree, and then uh, uh, God is 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 life. So He's the way, the truth, and the life. So He is He is the epitome of what life is. There is no intelligence greater than Him, and no energy that can prevent. His own potential energy from accomplishing what he intends. So, so that's what we sort of mean by life. Uh, I, I think I was I was going to mention that last time. I don't think I did that. That plants are never described in Scripture as living things, but uh, animals are, people are, God is, but not God. In Genesis, it doesn't. No, the the only living things there are the animals. So we made. Uh, living creatures and living things, so then their animal life. So, yeah, it's hard to know sometimes where to where to draw that line between. Well, I mean, it's true it's science too. Draw the line between animal and plant life. Um, I mean, I, I sometimes think in those. You know, there's no death before the fall of living things. There are some awfully small living things that die routinely. And, and, I, and I, I wonder at times whether there's a whether that line between living things and yeah, non living things soil builds up from the death of plant life. right. Well, plants now plants did die, but 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 then they're not classified as living Maybe. things. So so they did start rotting and, yeah. and they were eaten and, and such like that. So that's probably something that Sarfati will talk about. That's one of the major arguments for a young young earth is that there was no death prior to the fall and uh, for that to be the case uh, you have to get everything started almost simultaneously and started running and fall but then the fall take place rather quickly but there was death of plants before the fall. yeah death of plants right so I never heard anyone say that right but I mean they yeah. ate them I mean yeah. they, they ate the yeah. apple <laughs> yeah so they, they were eating plant life but that wouldn't classify as something bad, something dying in that case sense. I read an interesting article about plants where they did a series of studies where they would uh, subject 
two identical plants to different music, and also one where they would actually insult one plant and praise another one. That actually had an in, in effect on, the, on its growth. One was withered, the other dried. It's a part of the taxi. That is a show of rock music. Yeah, that, that's, that's what, when I was in high school, that's what, what it was. Rock music is bad because it kills plants or makes plants lean the other direction. Did they have the back masking too? They played it back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's these, I was thinking there's these vegans who only eat, don't eat animals, but there is another group that does not eat live. They only eat fruit that's fallen off the tree. It's dead. Genus. Well, I don't want to so we, we had a client that worked for, I don't think it's called British Aerospace anymore, number two defense contractor in the world, and she's a Janist, if you look that up. Is that what it is? And the pure form doesn't eat anything that you have to kill to eat it. Like, you wouldn't pull, eat a turnip because you have to pull it out. But this woman worked for, you want to say, do you know what your business is about? <laughs> Killing people. <laughs> well, that's what Moeller had an article about some some woman he met that uh, uh, saw a combine going through a wheat field, and she was just scandalized by the thousands of voices that were being cut off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, there's absurdity here tonight. <laughs> So okay, so there's our there's our quiz, and uh, we'll jump back into our notes here, and we'll make some more progress here. So far, we're keeping up the pace we need to. Uh, it's a shorter semester in the fall, so I've got a, got eleven weeks to do seventy seven pages. So I have to do seven pages a night, and we're on page fourteen. So so far, so good. The third uh, feature function of personality, and remember we're trying to distinguish here between functions of personality and the attributes of God, the functions of personality being those things uh, which make uh, God and mankind similar, and uh, we're suggesting here that this list is probably roughly a list that we can use to define the image of God, uh, that uh, Persons have these features, uh, but uh, and, and they share them with God. Uh, but uh, but animals and especially plants and other forms, created forms, don't have them. So these these seem to make a rough list of the things that make up the image of God. We'll talk a little bit about that later. The number letter C here, intelligence. We talked about life being. Potential energy directed by intelligence, so it works together with this one. Uh, we might call it reason, a, a capacity for rationality. Uh, we might say here, uh, God is the God who knows. First Samuel says, Proverbs 3 speaks of God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding he set the heavens in place by his knowledge. The depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. And Romans 11 uses the same terms again, as uh, Paul exclaims about the uh, cleverness here of the plan of God in this case. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So 
what is intelligence? Well, if I can if I can parse this here, it's always a little bit scary to do this, but uh, uh, knowledge seems to be the possession of facts, not to be confused with the learning of facts. God doesn't learn; we do, but God doesn't learn. So he has, but he has possession of facts. Understanding seems to be the correlation of facts, the intersection of all facts with each other, and then wisdom then the ability to apply all of those facts for good ends. This will come back again when we talk about the wisdom of God as an attribute. Uh, the all-wisdom, the omnisapience of God, as it's sometimes called, could not be if it weren't for the fact that God was all-knowing and uh, could not be all-knowing if he was not a rational being. Okay, So all persons have these skills to some degree, but God pers- possesses them perfectly. Okay. Purpose, we've also used this language uh, as we've worked through already, but uh, God has a plan. Uh, for this is the plan determined by the, for the whole world. The Lord has purposed who can thwart, it, thwart him. Our election was predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So, uh, so he's a he's a planning God, a scheming God in the best of senses. There, uh, the meaning of purpose then is a reaction to a future goal, which exists only in the mind, as though it were already present. Okay? And we do this all the time, right? You wake up in the morning, you engage in purpose, right? You you, you make a plan for the day and uh, sort of review all the things you intend to accomplish in the day, and then you get up and. And uh, go after them. Okay, so it's, it's again. This is this is something that uh, animals don't do. So you know, you know, kitty cat doesn't lay there and plan his day. Certainly, dogs don't. Maybe cats do, but 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 uh, you know, they don't they don't plan their day. They simply get up and act on instinct based on what you know flashes in front of them and, and such. Personal beings can construct plans. Apart from brute instinct, which is what animals have, they can exercise personal prerogatives and try to achieve plans. So we have we have this idea of purpose. Animals really only react to the stimulus of the moment. They really can't contradict instinct in the pursuit of self-devised goals. Okay, so we can. Uh, we can. I think this whole idea of anticipating the future and moving toward it. According to a, a, a certain strategy, is, is ours because we are purposing uh, beings. Okay, action, which sort of a uh, maybe a little overlap here. Come see the works of the Lord. God is at work. He works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So God is active, and so he independently form, performs deeds. And he does so because he can. He's got energy directed by, by his uh, by his intelligence, and because he's decided to do so in accordance with his purposes, and so he acts. So God acts as we do. Next one here, freedom. Perhaps we might run into a little bit more uh, of uh, some questions here because uh, God's freedom and man's freedom, while similar in some ways, 
are not identical, and I think we sort of need to tease out a little bit what the difference is here. But let's let's define it first, and then see if we can't uh, 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 come to some conclusions there. So God does whatever He pleases. Well, there's freedom defined in Job twenty-three, Daniel four. He does whatever He pleases with the powers of heaven, which the angelic realm. And the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Okay, what have you done? So, so there's this, there's this uh, idea here that his freedom is absolutely unrestrained and uh, cannot be thwarted by anything else. We've, whatever freedom we have, it's not this, because we can be stopped uh, in... in we, we we intend something, we want something, and and sometimes we just can't do it. We're we're stopped. Uh, we're, we're we're frustrated. Our plans uh, because we don't have absolute freedom in this sense. So there's perhaps one of the first differences that we notice here. Um, so what is freedom then? <clears throat> well, we'll start with a basic def- definition, but then I'm going to sort of spin off and, and, and offer a couple of, of nuanced definitions as well. Freedom is self-determination. Okay, so this is another, you know, some, some I mentioned earlier that some would say self-consciousness and self-determination are that which makes God and man persons. Uh, but uh, I think it's a little more than that, but uh, this, is, this, is, this is where self-determination falls in. It's the ability to make determinations in keeping with one's nature and purposes. So God is a certain way, he plans a certain way, and so he acts in accordance with that because he is free to do so. But there's more than one kind of freedom, and I think this, this shows up here uh, in our distinction between human and divine freedom. There's a kind of freedom that we might call freedom of indifference. Sometimes it's called contracausal freedom in the literature. And this is a freedom to do not only what one desires, but also its opposite. This is what a lot of people think that humans have. That we have an, you know, we're we're unrestrained. So, for instance, in the uh, in the choosing of God, you know, when we, you know, when we, when we, uh, when we, when we're born, we uh, people imagine well, we have a free will that we can we can either choose God or reject God equally. But that's that's not the case. In fact, it's never the case in any person. No one chooses contrary to their own dominant impulses. So even though we can speak in terms of humans having the power of choice, this does not mean that they have the power of indifference. They it, they can go one way or the other, and it makes no difference at all. That's what that's what I mean here. God doesn't even have this this kind of freedom. We wouldn't want him to. Okay, God does everything he pleases, and he doesn't do anything that he doesn't want to do. Uh, and we're the same way, uh, even in our in our in 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 our in our fallen state. We have a freedom of a sort. We do make choices according to our dominant impulse. We choose according to our nature. Okay. The problem is there is no impulse within us 
to choose God. That's that's the tension. So we we make choices. We and and I think this is very important for us when we uh, talk about the justice of God. Uh, God is just in condemning people for rejecting Him, not because they had the ability to choose Him, but because they freely and willingly rejected Him. Okay, so there 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 wasn't. There was an active rejection of God on the part of fallen mankind that makes them culpable, okay? Because they they freely reject and hate God, and that's wrong. And God can judge uh, on, on on that basis here. But no one has the freedom of indifference. That is, uh, can shrug their shoulders and do either either one one thing or another. There's also here, then, this freedom of spontaneity, the freedom uh, to to make choices, then, according to one's own nature, purposes, and governing desires, apart from external compulsion. Humans have freedom of spontaneity. We choose according to our nature. The the tension with the unbeliever is that his nature is thoroughly corrupted. So he chooses according to his nature, but his nature never sent, sent, you know, fires the positive sing- signals to do the right thing. Okay, so all persons have freedom of spontaneity, but finite persons are restricted in the execution of these choices because we get up some days and we intend to do something and we choose to do something and we're thwarted. Okay, so so God then is described here as absolutely free wholly free and that he that he cannot be stopped in what he do, in, in what he chooses to do this is what we mean by the term sovereign okay uh, we, we throw that term around quite glibly sometimes but this is what we mean by it that God can never be thwarted in anything that he chooses to do because he has absolute freedom of spontaneity so he's not bound in the realm of his own choices or in their impl- implementation by any force external to himself. So no one can stop him from doing what he wants to do. Okay? Does that follow? Does that make sense? So number one, that type of freedom, there's no... Doesn't really exist. No one, God Ex- included, that has that. Yeah, I mean, there's, it, it exists in a lot of people's minds, but it doesn't really exist in reality. But if you're a free will Baptist, that exists. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the idea that we've been raised to the point of neutrality, either, either we're born in a state of neutrality, which is the Pelagian idea, or we're raised to the point of, of, of neutrality by some sort of a prevenient grace. Uh, in, in both of those cases, then, uh, there, is the, there is the suggestion of freedom of indifference, but in reality, this doesn't exist. So, we in some ways have already answered this question. So should we talk about people as having free wills? And the answer is yes and no. Okay. Depending on how we want to define it. So in view of the preceding, it seems necessary to assign to mankind freedom of spontaneity in that he is not coerced to choose anything contrary to his own nature. It's not as though he's forced to reject God. You know, he, he, you know, kicking and screaming. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to reject God, but he's forced to. No, uh, there's no compulsion here. Of, uh, God forces people to reject him. They're born that way. 
But he chooses here always according to his own nature, purposes, and governing desires. So he chooses ever according to his own nature, but due to the depravity of his nature, possesses no chaste intentions. So if, if we can put it this way, he always does what he wants to do. He always wants to do the wrong thing. Okay, so in, 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 and I think that's important. So, so when we talk about the image of God, um, I'm inclined to think of it more as having to do with the capacities rather than the perfections. What I mean by it is that we, being in the image of God, have the capacity to make choices. We have the capacity to, to reason. We have the capacity to think. Uh, and, and so on and so forth. We have the capacity for for language, for instance, uh, and that wasn't lost at the fall. So when Adam died, uh, uh, sinned in the garden, and he was and he died spiritually. It's not as though he ceased being able to talk, or ceased being able to think, or even ceased being able to make choices. Uh, those things remain intact. He's still the image of God, but uh, his nature has been corrupted. Uh, so that he cannot make correct choices and and doesn't reason correctly at times. Okay, so that's uh, so that's that's really what we and I think that that becomes a very helpful thing for us uh, in a lot of areas. It's it's very helpful, like we talked about last semester with hermeneutics, reading our Bibles. An unbeliever looks at the words of the scriptures and does he understand what they mean? Yeah, they're words. They're normal words. You, you, you read them and, and they're subjects, verbs, and direct objects and you cobble them all together and you say, yeah, I know what it means. Uh, so what's, so, so, so he has the ability to read. What is, what does he lack? Understanding. Understanding here, yeah, they, the, 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 yeah, he doesn't welcome it. He's just got a hostility to it. So he knows what it means. He exchanges that truth for a lie. He he hates what he sees there. He knows what it means, good and well, but he hates it. He rejects it, doesn't submit to it. And so so he he retains the capacity for human language. Mm-hmm. But 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 what he lacks is the 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 nature then uh, which would cause him to embrace it. So uh, so what this is what uh, Jonathan Edwards talks about the difference between natural freedom and moral freedom. Uh, man has natural freedom in that he his chooser isn't broken, if I can put it that way. But he ha- but he lacks moral freedom in that he cannot choose contrary to his nature, and so therefore cannot choose the right. Does that, does that follow? But so the, so the that's why the yes and no. But the unbeliever can still make a moral choice that's correct, right? right. Well, in a sense, yes. People make right choices all the time. But not for the right reasons. But not for the right reasons, yes. The Their motivation is, the is, is off. Yeah. They're doing it because of, because of civic yeah. duty, yeah, laws. Yeah, it can, I mean, it can be a thousand different reasons. They, but uh, but what what is certain is they're not doing this to please God. So. I mean, I had someone today say they did something that was good, and they're like, "That really made me feel good." You know, they gave money to 
Yeah, Dr. McKean used to talk about relative good, and I always I always cringed a little bit when he did. I don't know if you did. But I always cringed a little bit when he talked about relative. This is what he well, meant some, by some things seem gooder than others. Right, right, right. I but mean, but that's person, not what he meant by if it. a person steals food to right. feed his family. Right, sure. That's still you know pe- people are you know. Well, what, what he was talking about that people actually do good things, you know. I, Yes, yeah, she was I'm, a, I'm a unsafe neighbor who comes out and shovels my sidewalk in the yeah. winter. Well, on the surface, it is yes. good, but 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 all those. But it's hard to see the the dark motive in that. Right, hard to see. you don't know what it is sometimes. But what what he's, what you have to say is if what what she says is true, right? You have to say, well, there's always pride. Maybe uh, yeah. I'll look good. I'll, right, though the person may not may not even realize it. They, they yeah. I mean, I think that was it. Isaiah sixty four six. I think sort of captures this. It says, "All our righteousnesses, that is, things that we do that correspond externally to the divine standard, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That yeah. is, that is, they may be externally good. They they may correspond to some sort of a righteous standard, at least in terms of the action." But they're non-meritorious because they're always ill-motivated. Why didn't you like relative good? What was the reason? Well, it gives. The, I guess it sort of gives the eyes sort of kind of good. Okay. okay. Whereas, where I, I, I tend to say it's it's there. There might be a civic good or a, a true right a righteousness, but there's no righteousness of motive. Oh, so, good. yeah, I'd, ra- I'd rather say it's, it's good and not good rather than kind of good, if I, if I could put it that way. So we would say in every choice except for um, the decision to choose God, then we... You didn't choose God. There's the problem. Right, God chose us. Right? Well, others, other than other than that decision, we would say we have we have freedom. Remain as freedom. Well, we always have freedom to choose according to our nature. But what what changed in you such that? I mean, there's a sense in which you did choose God, but only after He chose you. What did He have to do to make you, you know, warm to Him? Maybe why? We had to change your nature, right? Mm-hmm. People change choose according to the dominant impulse of their nature and so therefore God had to change your nature, give you a new nature in order for you to choose it. So that's why later you'll say regeneration precedes faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of friends who don't believe that. But it seems necessary yeah. you've got to change that nature yeah. give light before you make the right choice. Where you're dead. We're dead. Yeah. 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 So in the case of all other choices sure. then, uh, could it really be we couldn't really say that we've made completely free choices, though, because everything that we would choose, there's so many other factors involved, right? Including, uh, yeah, like a uh, long chain of cause and events. Like I chose this because of this, this, and this. Right, right. Couldn't, couldn't really be truly free, right? Right, sense. right. We, yeah. So we, we have freedom of spontaneity. We, we make choices based on our. Nature. What are the limitations? The one limitation is our nature; it's broken. And then also, the second limitation is our finiteness. 
we can we can be stopped in the exercise of our will. Well, God can't be stopped in the exercise. So, so those are the two limitations, if I, if I can put it that way. The, the first limitation is the corruption of our nature, and the second limitation is our finiteness. But beyond that, we do have a kind of freedom that is that is real. It is, it's 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 a real freedom, and I think again that's 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 necessary. I think to the justice of God, just as it's necessary, we said earlier, to to reading uh, and thinking, it's also necessary uh, that we be choosing beings. Otherwise, there, I, I think we would, we would run up against a really serious tension with uh, divine justice if, if we had, if we were, if we had no freedom at all in, in any sense. Okay. I summarized there that the mystery of man's freedom and God's inalterable decree is not an easy one to lock, unlock, because we know that God is carrying out his decree absolutely perfectly, and somehow we're participants in the outworking of that. And so, you know, the, there, there's still this question okay, if God is has made this outcome necessary how is it that he's not compelling us against our wills to do things and it's 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 a rather a difficult matter to uh, uncover some of some have suggested that there is a kind of a middle knowledge that god sort of yeah, it there's there's a Calvinistic kind of middle knowledge, and then there's an Arminian kind of middle knowledge. The idea here is that God knows, you know, he, he created you, and so he knows you so very well that he knows that when you walk out of here, which direction you're going to turn, up the hallway or out the door, uh, because he knows you so thoroughly and so well uh, that he can that he can pre- predict absolutely what you're going to do because he knows all of the all of the factors that could possibly come against you come come into your mind that would uh, that would sway you to go one direction or the other um, and so he knows us the Calvinist the, the Calvinist uh, proponent of middle knowledge would say because he 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 knows us because he created us uh, the Arminian. Uh, Makes a similar claim that there is a there is a middle knowledge of sorts, but it's because God learns. So God looks down the corridors of time and says, "Aha, Mark's going to choose me, and so I'm going to sort of preempt that, and I'm going to choose him first. Uh, that that we have a, I have a real problem with. The Calvinistic approach to middle knowledge is more acceptable. I don't know that it's necessary, uh, but it it's it's at least at least plausible, if I can put it that way. Do you have a comment on that? Well, no, I, I was just thinking. So that means, as we say, I'm just going to say that everything is determined. The decree means everything is determined. But if you accept what you said about freedom, that's why so many people can't accept determinism. Right. Because if this if this freedom is true, if we have freedom of spontaneity, for, for a lot of folks... That just seems so contradictory, right? right. That they, you just can't have things to things. They have to be, you just can't be determined. You know. I mean, I'm willing to accept, obviously, that yeah. 
God has determined that the court's not come of all events, and I still have freedom of spontaneity, right. but it's not easy to reconcile. Right. Too. So That's some people difficult. just deny the, the determinism part. Right. The, the middle knowledge then is a good solution to the problem, isn't it? It's sort of a middle way. <laughs> I, I'm not, yeah. Most Calvinists don't like don't it. Like it. <laughs> they don't like the because they don't find any proof for it, right? In scripture, it's 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 a it's a model to explain what how it might be, but there's really no you can't open your scriptures and find that anywhere, and it's so not, it's, it's not necessarily a foreknowledge. Of this, what you're saying. Well, what about um, I've heard somebody offer this as a proof text, like when Jesus says, "If if Sire and Titan had repented." Yeah. Or, or I forget exactly what the verse was, but basically he was saying that if this would have happened, or if they would have done this, then this would have happened. So right, yeah. Kind of I think I have it later on in these notes. I, I condensed these a little bit, so I can't remember what I what I left in and what I took out, but there is this... So God knows possibilities, but he knows them as possibilities, not as potential realities. That's how Dr. McCune put it. It makes sense to me. So... So God does apparently have what might seem to us to be useless knowledge in his head. He knows what might have happened had things happened, had had he planned things differently, but he does not conceive of them as possibilities, but rather as, as well, he, he only sees them as, he, he doesn't see them as potential realities. Does that make sense? So, Arminians theoretically accept determinism. Are they accept that to a degree all things right? Because you've got this this idea of foreknowledge according to, but he knows everything. Right, he does know everything. Yeah, and and when you talk to people, you know they won't. They'll say, "I don't believe in determinism," but if God foreknows, even if you just say God foreknows, He knows. If he knows what I'm going to eat for breakfast, can I eat anything else for breakfast? No. I mean, it's determined, and it's just by the fact that he knows. It is, but they would, but they would come back and say, "Well, he foreknows because he observed it in eternity past, yeah. not because he determined it. Not because he determined right. it, but he knows it." Right. But we should. You, know, you might want to mention here. You mentioned probably in our class open theism. This this is a new idea right. that's come along yeah, recently to try to solve this dilemma to say this freedom is so great that we're talking about this contra-causal freedom therefore God can't really have determined everything he might have determined a few things but he's still learning he's open to change this is a kind of a beyond Arminianism and so you're probably right yeah I think we talk about that under uh, the omniscience of God I think we have mentioned sometime in the class open theism right Christ died for our sins, past, present, future. Yes. Okay, so there's a knowledge there of, you know, our sinfulness. Right. Yeah, we're going to talk about this this idea of foreknowledge. It's it's coming up. But we, we tend to think of foreknowledge as knowing in advance. Um, but that's probably not what we mean most of the time when you see it in scripture there is a usage of that in the end of the end of the book of acts where where uh, Paul 
foreknew that the, uh, the, 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 the shipwrecked ship would, would, would lose no people. You know, I remember that little story. He said, everybody stay on the ship and you'll be okay, which doesn't seem to be the right thing to do. But he said, I, I, and the word foreknowledge is used. So it does, it does appear there that it's used in that sense of, of knowing something before the fact. But usually when you see foreknowledge in most of its theological context, it has more the idea of the establishment of a relationship before the fact. I mean, we, when we use the word know, we use it a lot of different ways. We can know fact, but we can know people, right? So, so if I... If I was, on prior experience. Right. Well, it's acquaintance. It's it's not it's it's like if I would say you know I know Bill, it's not that I just know facts about Bill. I have an acquaintance with him. That's what we mean when we say I know him. Right, but Bill could change. Though. <laughs> Bill could change. Right, but but you know how but but what I'm saying is we use the word know in two different ways. Right, we can we can have a knowledge of acquaintance and we can have a knowledge of facts. <clears throat> um, and usually, usually when we say we know a person, we're not usually saying that we know facts about the person. It means we have an acquaintance with them. And so, so when when God speaks of the foreknowledge of individuals unto salvation, it's it's more the establishment of a relationship, a, a personal knowledge, rather than a factual knowledge. I know that they're going to get saved. But rather, I have established a relationship with them in advance. It sounds like people saying, "I know Jesus," and they can have a factual versus the relationship right. too, right? Well, you and know, I mean, they a, talk about that. I mean, this, this is a little crass here, but uh, like, you know, Adam knew Eve. Well, he established a sexual relationship with her. It's not that he learns new facts about Eve. It's that he established a kind of relationship with her, and so that so we use that term in in multiple ways. It, it, it's got a semantic range. That, that term doesn't always mean the same thing. And so the Arminian looks at that word and says, "Aha! God knows things in advance because He learned them by looking down the corridors of time." When it's probably not what that means. It means that in eternity past, God established that He was going to have a relationship with an individual. And so, so it's, it means something other than the the factual kind of knowledge. Does that make sense? It does. I guess I, well, I guess I, I got to think that one through. Well, what, 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 Rich is, what Rich is talking about it when he says God knows my past, he forgave my past sins, my present. So he's just saying God knows everything about me, my past, present, and future. He would just put that under omniscience, right? In the sense of, yeah, God knows everything about you, omniscience. He's just saying that most people would say that's, you could call that foreknowledge. And it is God knows before what your sins will be. That's true. But he's just saying that the term foreknowledge, prognosco, has in scripture a more technical sense. It does, it means more than just know before. God, because he's omniscient, he knows everything. He knows before and he knows what, what, what you will do when you get home. That's not foreknowledge. I mean, it is foreknowledge in the English sense. He knows before, but it's not foreknowledge in the scripture. Am I right? Yeah. In fact, if you look in like a, like the standard Greek dictionary, yeah. uh, if you look up the word prognosco that he mentioned there, it, it'll say when used of persons. 
it means that you have an acquaintance or a relationship. When used of facts, it means that you have a simple knowledge of data. And we use we use this, the word know in the very same way in English. Yeah, I I know that there is a train sitting on the tracks. Well, that's a fact. But I know the conductor means I have an acquaintance with him and maybe can persuade him to move it. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you something on that. <laughs> okay. On Okay. Okay. So that one I thought we might get bogged down on and we did. But let's let's move on to the next one. Emotion. God has emotions, as we do. We see this because of you know emotions that are predicated of him. In all their distress he also was distressed. In his love and in his pity or mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the ways of old, yet they rebelled and grieved him. So there's grief, distress, love, and mercy all in one passage. Psalm 11, the wicked and those who love violence, his whole hate, soul hates, but the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. So he hates, he loves, he grieves, he's merciful, he's got distress. So all of these these are uh, terms that we typically would describe as emotions. So he has he has these, but let's let's see if we can't uh, tease this out because uh, I I think we we have difficulty distinguishing as humans the difference between em, um, emotions or sometimes called affections and passions. It's actually, I've got an interesting dissertation back in my office uh, that uh, that says that uh, prior to the Prior to Freud, the, the category of emotions was rarely used. Um, that you had two terms that were used. There were affections, that is the inclinations of the heart. And then there were passions, which were more violent and uncontrolled. They were, they were, they were, uh, they, they were, they were, they were reactionary in nature. Okay. And that uh, Freud actually brought them together and gave them a common name called emotion. Makes a pretty good case uh, for this that it's a that's a that the the term emotion is something of a of a modern psych- psychology term, at least in terms of its uh, common usage today. So so here we have a definition: emotion, or perhaps we might call an affection, is a disposition towards an object or an action sourced in the mind that expresses itself in feeling. All persons, divine or human or angelic for that matter, possess emotions. They're disposed, you know, when we, you know, we're, I mean, when, when we think about the news, we are disposed either to think positively about Kavanaugh and negatively about Ford or the ver- reverse, Right? Because we, 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 we're, we're inclined one way or the other. Okay? So it's sourced in the mind. It expresses itself, quite frankly, in feeling. And all persons possess this. But passions are more reflexive in nature. They're reflexive, they're reactionary, that emanate spontaneously and variously from a complex of dispositions, habits, chemical and glandular impulses, 
and they are not essential to personhood. So, for instance, I can, if I can say, you become passionate when you get cut off in traffic, right? And the reason is because you didn't see it coming, right? Uh, and, and you're surprised, you're annoyed, you're frustrated, you're angry, uh, depending in many ways on what kind of a personality you have. Some people just back off, but... <laughs> I don't know about you, but you know, you you, you you tend to. I tend to have passions when people do that. You know, I, get, I get ticked, or I, you know. Uh, so so, I have passions. God doesn't have passions, and if I can put it frankly here, God doesn't have passions because He's never surprised by anything. Okay. You know, I mean, he would he would know the car's coming and and avoid the conflict. You know, not that not that he ever drives, but. Uh, but but the fact that he is he is an omniscient being means that those those spontaneous reflexes and reactions don't occur uh, because he always acts on principle rather than in the, in in the uh, in the moment of of new knowledge here. So we tend to think in terms of God classically as an impassable God. That he is, he has no passions. So the quality of impassibility, the absence of passion, has long been an attribute of God. Most most of your older uh, systematic theologies will include this, along with omniscience, omnipotence, and there be impassibility. Um, but uh, it's it's really being forgotten today. Open theists and Arminians especially scoff at the idea of impassibility. Of course, uh, God must be uh, ha- have passions because uh, he 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 he's suddenly made aware of the fact that someone sinned and he grieves, or someone died and he's just uh, you know broken up about it, or 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 somebody wins an election because he's an open God. He's a God in process. He doesn't really know what's going to happen. And so he gets excited as as we do when the when our candidate wins. So he doesn't know what's happening. So uh, so the open theist, the process theist, uh, denies categorically this idea of impassibility. But there's also some of a Calvinistic persuasion. Uh, Wayne Grudem and Millard Erickson both are rather vehement uh, that uh, impassibility is not an attribute of God. Uh, this is because of a conflation here of this idea of passion and emotion. God has emotions, and we all recognize that, but he doesn't have passions. And the historic understanding of impassibility is reflected here in, in Shedd's comments. So by divine affirming divine impassibility, I mean that we that God has is not that God has no feeling but that no creature can independently inflict emotional distress upon him so that he is moved inevitably to an action that he otherwise would not have performed. Okay, so God is not surprised. God is never taken off guard in such a way that he didn't see what was coming and so he changes his mind. Okay? That's what we mean by it. This is how Shed puts it. I think it's just really well conceived. It's a little, it's a little hard to read, but I, I think he does a really good job of describing it. Impassibility means this: that God cannot be wrought upon, impressed by the universe of matter and mind which He created from nothing. 
Creatures are passively related to one another and are made to be affected by the other creatures. But the creator is self-subsistent and independent of creation so that he is not passively correlated to anything external to himself. Even when God is complacent, that he's inclined towards a creature's holiness or displacent towards a creature's sin, this is not the same as a passive impression upon a sensuous organism from an outward sensible object eliciting temporarily a sensation that was previously unfelt. I, I, I summarize that as a surprise. Sin and holiness are not substances, and God's love and wrath are self-moved and unceasing energies of the divine nature. He is voluntarily and eternally complacent towards good and displacent towards evil. So he is always inclined against sin. He always hates it. And he always loves that which is good. But he doesn't become enraged. It seems that recently there have been a couple of songs that have been written that talk about about, uh, God being enraged. And I, it seems it seems to me to be a, a word that I don't I don't like to use of God because it sort of implies here sort of a lack of control. You know, God sort of loses control. He just he sees something bad happens, he just gets so ticked off that he just can't can't control himself. And I, and I don't know that we can really think of God in that kind of a term. Uh, it's rather that he hates sin. He always hates sin. He must hate sin because he's a holy God. But to speak in terms of him being enraged or passionate against against evil is probably not the best way to describe that. Does that, does that make sense, Seth? Yeah. Yeah. One one thought. Um, so when Christ is in the temple, right, and he's casting out the money changers, he becomes upset, but he's angry at sin. Then, and that's just consistent with his nature. Well, two things. One, Jesus being God. Is is an impassive God. However, there is always this. And we're going to get into this next semester if we continue this here, right? Uh, Jesus, I think there is a sense in which he was not always immediately aware in his humanity what was coming next. Uh, so we talk about the passion of Jesus Christ, right? Same same idea here, right? So there is a, there is a there. There is a suffering that that Christ endured that was I don't know if I want to say surprising, but just something that uh, he, he was not fully aware of what it was going to be like as a human. Well, certainly, in all points, he was tempted as we are. So, I mean, passion would be yeah. Well, he has no, he's no unchaste passion. So, so whatever passions that Jesus had, they're always chaste passions. They're always appropriate passions. Right, no, exactly. So, so, yeah. Right, but he never, but Jesus didn't really have the capacity to sin. No, I understand that. But, but, but he, but he had, but he had, he was surprised that Jesus in his humanity was sometimes surprised. There's great temptation in our passion. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, The fact that that Jesus didn't always see what was coming 
means that he does face a temptation that he would not ordinarily have been capable would not poss- would not ordinarily have been possible for him as pure God. So in this example, I mean that was righteous anger. Right, so so he so that may have been. A, I, I'm I'm okay with talking about Jesus having a response of passion, but in his, in that case, every one of his passions were always appropriate, righteous, good. So when you talk about impassibility, then that's God the Father. Yeah, I'm speaking as God as God. Okay. Right. And the Son. Right. Yes. Yes. So, right. Yeah. That's 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 part of the tent, and that's. Well, a lot of the uh, that's uh, the intrigue that we'll have to go into next semester here because Jesus, you know, the God Man, the theanthropic person. Wow, there's there's a lot there's a lot of intrigue that has to be unpacked with that. So, so if he took on humanity, part of the human man would be passion. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to allow that kind of language for Jesus. The human, and, and you said passion is a reflex or reaction. So you're saying Jesus could react in his humanity to what he what came upon him because he wasn't in his humanity um, omniscient. Right. So he could he could there could be surprises for him. Well, so I, I mean, still consistent with his character. I right. Also, don't be wholly righteous right. reflexes. Right. But we, you know, but it could be. You know, hard to talk about it. It could be alarming. Alarming is not sinful, right? I mean, right. the suffering could be alarming, or the torture could be alarming, humanly speaking, without being sinful. Mm-hmm. And Moses prays an intercessory prayer, and people say, "Well, God changed his mind." And people say, "God doesn't change his mind." Yeah. Well, can I hold that one off until we talk about immutability? The okay. changes because it's sort of yeah what we're talking about here too. Right. Yeah. Now Jesus, as a human, changes mind. You know, he could decide not to eat lunch or to eat lunch or you know, you know, some something mundane like that. It's because in his humanity, he 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 did not. Carry in his humanity all the attributes, the full attributes of deity in his humanity. He always possessed them in his theanthropic person, but he did not exhibit them always in his humanity. And that's that's the complication of it. Okay, self consciousness, self consciousness. Uh, I think it's wrapped up into this whole whole idea here that God says, I am who I am. He's aware of who he is. Um, I think of Descartes here, right? I think, therefore I am. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the capacity of, of all persons to think objectively about themselves. They're aware of their own existence and of the significance of their own existence here. Uh, first Corinthians 2.10, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men know the thoughts of man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except for the spirit within God. So all persons here, the thoughts of a man, so all persons are included here as having 
a spirit that is you can think about your own thoughts if i can if i can put it that way you know another way of putting it is that uh, this is rather a, a picturesque way of, of thinking of it is is humans know know what to do with mirrors right you know, you, you see, you know, the honey funniest videos. The dog sees a mirror and doesn't know what to do with it. A cat doesn't know what to do with it, but a human does, right? They look in a mirror and say, "Aha, that's me." And yeah, there's some things I need to fix here. <laughs> Something I can't fix, but 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 you're aware that you're there and that there are things that you can do to to you know change your change your condition, your status here, and so. <coughs> Self-consciousness is awareness of your isness, you, 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 your own being. Okay, so it's the ability to objectify oneself and one's own thoughts and know that one has done so. The ability to abstractly reflect upon oneself, analyzing motives, intentions, affections, and all persons can do this. But humans, finite persons, do this incompletely and can be deceived. Which is why, for instance, at the end of Psalm 139, David says, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my, uh, forgetting the word here, but my ways, and see if there be any wicked way in me. But he's just given us a whole reflective psalm about what he thinks about himself. But he comes to the end and says, you know, I am not capable of perfectly analyzing even my own self. I can be self-deceived. You know, we've all been there. We've said, I'm sorry, and we're not even sure if we've met it or not <laughs> after, after we're done. Well, it's a, so, but, but God is, is perfect in this sense. He doesn't, uh, so God is not prone to self-deception, and he always can analyze his own thoughts and others perfectly, completely. Does that make sense? So self-consciousness. And then finally, moral agency. And with this, we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> uh, this is this, this is the uh, uh, Psalm 113. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So the ideas of sin and wrong and right and good are part of the divine vocabulary and, and uh, terms that can be used to describe the activity of God. What do we mean by moral agency? Well, it's the awareness of obligation in issues of right and wrong, that is unique to persons. It's the ability to say, perhaps again, here's the picturesque way of putting it, it's the ability to say, I ought. You know, cats don't, dogs don't say, I ought. You know, you, in fact, we, we take, we derive pleasure out of the fact that animals sometimes don't say, I ought. So we watch the National Geographic Channel and the, the, you know, the cheetah chases down the gazelle and we get a real rise out of it. Why? Because there, there was no moral agency in terms of of that cheetah. He, he was just doing something that was instinctive. He didn't feel bad at all. He was just acting. Uh, but uh, we've got moral agency. Uh, we can say something is right or wrong, I shouldn't kill, or I, or I should tell the truth, and, and so on, so on, so on, and so forth. So God then is a moral agent. More than this, he's the standard of moral purity and is thus free from all that is evil, perfectly represents what is good. So he's not only a moral agent, he is the standard of what is moral 
and what is immoral. Okay, so all of these things come together uh, to be the functions of persons. And collectively here, together, they, they make up something very close to, roughly, uh, roughly defined here for us, what it means that when we say that we're in the image of God. We have these capacities. We retain these capacities, right? We're still moral agents. We're still self-conscious. We're still determining. We still have emotions. Now, they're, they're in, in, we, we've lost the perfections. We don't always choose rightly. We don't always choose good. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, we, we retain all of these capacities because they're intrinsic to what it means to be a person or an image bearer of, 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 of God. Does that, that follow? That makes sense? Next week we'll ta- start talking here about the, the attributes of God, which are sometimes called the perfections of God. So that's, that's going to be the distinction. These are functions of personality. Next week we're going to start talking about the uh, the perfections of God, which together make him who he is. So we'll talk about the idea of attributes, and then we'll start uh, plugging away at them. We'll take some time uh, going through all of the attributes of God here.